Welcome to Season 4, Episode 9 of Fire Away, Redner Law's online show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Stuart Rudner. I'm an employment lawyer and mediator, founder of Rudner Law, and your host of this episode of Fire Away. Just a reminder, Fire Away streams online live every month, and if you miss an episode or want to watch one again, they're always available on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, LinkedIn, and on our website. Very excited about today's episode. I'm joined by Les Freeman, a group benefits practitioner with the Creative Planning Financial Group. And we're going to be just looking at employee benefit and insurance plans, discussing potential costs and liabilities that may not be thinking about it, and other things you should be aware of when you are uh, shopping around for benefit planning coverage. So Les, thank you very much and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. I'm looking forward to the discussion, and I really appreciate the fact that you reached out to me and and raised some of the issues we're going to talk about. I mean, you know, I will introduce this briefly by saying that, you know, benefits are often a topic that gets very little attention other than the monthly premium costs. But the details can be critical, both from a liability perspective, as well as from an employee happiness perspective. Um, And of course, the key concern here is you want to make sure that you are an employer of choice but you're also not exposing the employer to unanticipated costs or liabilities because of the way that you structure your benefit insurance plans. What do you need to know about how the plans work? How can you avoid exposing yourselves to to unanticipated costs? And I'll just throw this in here now because this is something that often comes up in my practice. Did you know that if an employee becomes disabled after you let them go, they might try to seek disability benefits and they might be denied because they're no longer covered. And you as the employer could be on the hook for months, if not years of potential benefits. So this is just one small point of things that you need to be aware of. Another one is that if you let somebody go and you cut off their benefits immediately on the day of termination, you can be not only in breach of employment standards legislation, but again, you could be on the hook for benefit, for lost benefits if you cut them off prematurely. So these are the things that I often think about, but Les looks at these plans in a very different way than I do and, and can also provide some insight on what you should be aware of when you're looking at, when you're evaluating your plan or looking for new plans. So um, Les, you reached out to me and suggested that we use this as a topic for a show. So I'll, I'll let you start. Uh, where, where do you want to start in terms of things that people should be aware of? Well, I think the number one thing that I find is what people often consider great news, which is, wow, I can save multi-thousands, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 on my annual benefit costs. And they're having a, a, they're extremely excited and I'm extremely concerned. And why I say that is benefit plans, like many other things, are uh, follow the old adage, you get what you pay for. And what do I really mean by that? Often there's two types of liabilities that I see that happen in these situations. One's a financial liability, and the second one is a potential legal liability. And I'll give you an example. Um, Every benefit plan uh, has something called a formulary, and this is basically a list of the drugs that are covered. So similar to OHIP, OHIP doesn't cover every single drug out there. There's a specific list. And one of the easiest ways to actually save somebody money is to change the formulary. So this was the one that we that I spoke to with you about, Stuart. And what had happened was somebody was looking to save some money and they changed the formulary and they weren't quite aware of this. 
And that would potentially cause somebody who was on a expensive drug, let's say they had um, Crohn's and they want Humira, um, to no longer have this coverage, which would be catastrophic from a financial uh, perspective as well as potentially an employment law perspective. Yeah, no, look, from the employment law perspective, I mean, we often talk about constructive dismissal and rarely do we talk about it in the context of benefits, but that's a perfect example. If someone's compensation plan included a benefits plan, which covered them for this very expensive drug, and all of a sudden they're on the hook for, uh, I mean, give me an example. What would that type of drug cost somebody on a monthly basis? Um, possibly to $2,500 to $4,000. Wow. So for most people, that's going to be a tremendous expense. And you can easily see how if a constructive dismissal is a substantial change to the terms of their contract, all of a sudden losing this benefit, which is worth $4,000 a month, that's a huge change. Uh, so, you know, A, you might have very unhappy workers, but B, you may face a constructive dismissal claim. So that's a great example. Uh, and I think you had some other, other examples of potential, uh, potential liabilities as well you want to cover. Um, another one that has to do with the disability coverage. So we think disability coverage, you know, and we're, we're not often sure exactly what that means. So the most basic thing is how much am I covered for? And something that you actually need to make sure that you're doing is regularly updating salaries. So somebody gets a promotion, for example, and let's say they are promoted and now they're a VP and nobody you know, thought about it because nobody's really managing the benefit plan particularly well. And we simply forget the salary update. And this goes on for a little bit. And all of a sudden, their benefits are understated or their disability insurance is understated by, for argument's sake, $2,000 a month. It sounds like a lot, but over years with a couple of promotions, that's possible. Well, people think, oh, what's $2,000 a month? And I'm like, okay, if someone's disabled and it goes on for 30 years, the answer is $700,000. So simply not maintaining the plan, simply you know taking your eye off the road will potentially cost somebody, and it could be the employer, um, you know, $700,000. Um, another idea is in the, in the course of changing benefit providers, we're not paying attention to the maximums. So all of a sudden we reduce the maximum by let's take a smaller amount, uh, $500. And now that person has $500 less coverage, that's $180,000. So those are the types of issues that I see regarding disability. Uh, those are great points, Les. And yeah, just on, on the first example, I mean, you know, we don't often see negligence claims in the employment law world, but that is a, probably a great example of where it's, you know, the onus should fall on the employer to be updating the policy, update the coverage. And if they fail to, and as a result, as you in your example, uh, the person's lost you know three quarters of a million dollars in potential benefits, then you know the employer may well be on the hook just because they didn't bother to update the uh, the plans and the coverage. So, uh, great example. I was gonna, and I'm just curious based on your experience. I know this is just a, a ballpark, but what percentage of employers do you think are really good about keeping everything up to date? It's a lot lower than you would actually think. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I thought the broker was doing that. Oh, you know what? It just didn't quite happen. So I'm I'm thinking it's a lot lower than you're thinking, but I don't have a specific number. Yeah, well, I think you've answered the question, though. I think it's a lot lower than we would all hope. 
Uh, so, uh, and of course, then, you know, and I guess the real risk here or one real risk is somebody, the individual is affected and could lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if they don't get proper advice, they may just think, well, I guess I'm stuck with it and off to suck it up. And, you know, they may not actually get the advice they need to pursue a claim against either the employer or whoever is potentially liable. So there can be a very real loss here in addition to the, the point you made earlier. And just uh, as you were talking about that first point about the change in, in coverage, you, you reminded me of another point, which I wanted to mention be, before I forget, uh, which is oftentimes we, we see someone who's let go from their job and their benefits may continue for a short period, maybe a matter of weeks, maybe a matter of months, but at some point they're cut off. And if you have somebody who is on one of those expensive medications that you mentioned less, you know, if they're paying 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 a month, the loss of that benefit is a huge potential liability for the employer as well. So if we're now looking at a wrongful dismissal claim and most wrongful dismissal claims, the focus is on lost salary and there is probably going to be a, a line or two in there about lost benefits, but it's usually just a, a nominal amount. If you've got someone who's lost a $4,000 a year uh, bit of medication, that's going to all of a sudden become a huge part of any claim. So that's also something to be aware of, not when you're changing your plan, but at the time of termination. Yeah, I think there's one other item that people should really be aware of, which is having something that I call an office policy with respect to being on the plan as it relates to disability. Not the insurance policy itself, but an office policy that says, what happens if somebody is disabled? You know, often they're allowed to stay on the plan, but the question is, how long are they allowed to stay on the plan? Does it go indefinitely? Generally not. But if you haven't specified something, uh, you could be getting yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great point, Les. And we often get calls from clients who will say, we've had somebody who's been on medical leave for a year, two years, five years, and uh, they're still on the plan. They're still getting coverage. And of course, there is a cost to the employer. And some employers are perfectly fine with with absorbing that cost, some are not, um, but you're going to want to have a clear policy, as you said. And then you've got to be mindful of human rights laws as well. I mean, there are policies I've seen which say if you're disabled for more than, for example, two years, your benefits coverage will stop. Arguably, that's discrimination on the basis of disability. So you'd have to be mindful of potential human rights claims as well. Um, but I think you know one of, the, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on as a guest and talk about these things is because most employers are not even turning their minds to these issues. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. That you know they're not thinking of these types of things, and that's where I come in, and you know people like you come in to get them to at least see these things before they occur. Yeah, because I you know from from what I see, and you you see more than I do. Uh, most of the time, the discussion is okay. Our benefits are are up and let's take it to market and see if we can get you the best possible deal. And all, all anybody's looking at is the dollar figure and they're not really focused on anything else. So it's, it's important to have someone like you who will actually walk them through some of these issues and make them aware of choices they can make, but also potential costs and liabilities. Right. And I see that as an exercise. Sometimes it's an exercise in math as, as opposed to an exercise in advice. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's gotta be, at least from my perspective, both. Um, and I did want to come back to the whole uh, issue of people on disability for a second, because one of the things that often comes up is when somebody is on disability benefits, things change after two years. Uh, and I think there's a lot of confusion as to why and, and what it means. So maybe I'll, I'll let you explain uh, what happens after two years. 
So any disability plan, you have a definition of disability. And one of the definitions is basically, what are you covered for? So there's something called own occupation, which as it sounds is what you have actually been doing. So in your case, you're a lawyer and you're doing law. So you'll be covered uh, for two years to be a lawyer. But at the two-year mark, most plans, not all, change to something called any occupation, which basically means any occupation that you can do by reason of education, training, or experience. So that's pretty much anything. So they're really saying, you know, can you really work at all? And all of a sudden, the lawyer is in for a really big shock when he's, you know, asked to take a job at, you know, one-tenth or who knows what amount of, of the income. Uh, there are solutions to this, but again, this needs to be explained. The employer and the employee need to be aware, particularly higher income earning employees, that there are options and there are uh, possible solutions. Uh, and they need to know this, obviously, before the fact as opposed to after. So let's work that through and you can continue to use, use me as the example. Uh, you know, let's say like, like, God forbid, I became disabled. So if, if I understand right, for two years, if I'm unable to practice law, I would be entitled to disability benefits. But after two years, does it mean that I have to go get a job working as a, a cashier at a fast food restaurant or what does it mean? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but let's look at uh, perhaps a file clerk in the law office, maybe. And, you know, obviously they have very different income than, than the lawyers. Right. Great example. I think that really helps clarify it for me and I'm sure for many others. Uh, but the point is that you, after that two-year point, you can't just continue collecting benefits. Now, you did say that there are solutions. So what? Uh, how else could this play out? So some of the solutions are there are, you know, top-up type of arrangements available that will, you know, be offered by somebody like myself. And at that point, um, you could have coverage for what you do, which is your own occupation all the way up to age 65. Got it. Presumably but if you're not offered it, you're obviously probably, you don't know what you don't know and you're not going to, you know, take advantage. Exactly. So that so in that scenario, if I did know about it and if I did have that coverage, then I could say I don't really want to work as a file clerk. If I can't work as a lawyer, basically, I'm not going to work at all. That's correct. And I, and I can still get my benefits. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, again, it's something that's very, very unknown for most people. And, and where we see it is what often happens. You probably see this as well is that that two-year point, you know, the insurer will reach out to the individual and say, you must, you know, you're only covered now if you can't work in any occupation. We believe that you can, uh, therefore your benefits are being cut off. Uh, and then the employer is advised that the individual's benefits are being cut off. The employer makes the assumption that means that they're able to come back to work. And all of a sudden what often happens is they send a letter to the employee saying, we expect to see you back at work in two weeks. And if you don't come back, then we are going to deem that you've abandoned your employment. Um, is that, do you see that happening fairly often? Um, I see that from time to time because they feel that they're not able to go back to work, but yet they may not have the coverage any longer. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, I feel like I see it more often, I guess, because when I see it, it's because this has become a dispute or it's become litigious. Uh, but often it's because the employer just does, doesn't understand what it means. When the insurer says that the person is no longer eligible for benefits, they assume what it means is they're able to return to their pre-disability job, uh, which, of course, 
you know, those are two very different things, but I've seen a lot of employers get themselves into trouble because they take that approach. They tell the person, if you don't show up on Monday, then uh, you're going to be deemed to abandon your job or we're going to fire you for cause. Uh, and then of course they face a wrongful dismissal claim. So it's important to understand, you know, how this plays out and what it means and not just make any, not make any assumptions on, uh, on that point or, or any point really. Uh, so I know we had a couple of other points we wanted to try to cover. Um, yeah, you mentioned also issues about changing the non-evidence maximum for coverage. Maybe we can talk about that for a few minutes. Yes. So a non-evidence uh, maximum is basically the amount that you can qualify for without actually having to prove any health um, considerations. So effectively, you know, that's the no questions asked limit. And what that could mean, again, if you change if you change carriers, that limit could change. Um, generally, it's the you know broker's job and the employer's job to make sure that that doesn't happen. But sometimes, in the in the excitement of saving all that money, they're you know making some significant errors, and they've actually you know um, hurt the individual that's covered. And this doesn't occur in general for one individual. This could be a whole group of many individuals, which is why it's even more significant. And so how does that usually play out? Like when, when does it become a potential liability for the employer? Um, generally, till it, not till it's too late. So it's when somebody is on claim that they're saying, oh, I thought I was covered for this much and maybe I was previously. And again, um, it's too late. Right. And, and of course, in that case, you know, as you said, the, the company probably didn't realize the change, so they wouldn't have communicated that change to the employees. The employees were never advised. That's usually the case. Yeah. So now you've got a claim for either negligence or negligent misrepresentation uh, by omission, essentially, by not for not telling the employee that their coverage has now gone from whatever it was before to something far less than that. So. Uh, a great, another great example of how you know, cutting costs is great. Um, now, on that point, I mean, some, sometimes do you see the situation where you can go and get new coverage that is comparable, but it is you are able to get a lower cost? Oh yeah, there's there's you know often there are ways um, to to lower costs uh, without necessarily taking away too much benefit. I think the real important part is disclosure and making sure that somebody explains exactly what's going on behind the scenes. And I think that's too frequently the part that is missed. It's understanding why the costs are um, lower. And if usually if they're ridiculously lower by a significant amount, something's changed. I mean, when I say there are opportunities, um, there are opportunities where benefits aren't being utilized, therefore they're not necessarily um, required or just a different way of doing things. Right. And that, that's probably a good segue to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is healthcare spending accounts, because I know I, I've had people recommend it to me and I've had clients say they've done this where they decided instead of having a set sort of menu of things that all their employees get, they want to just have essentially cash available. So if somebody needs orthodontics, they have that. If somebody needs glasses, they have money for that, but it's not a fixed set of benefits. Uh, it's, it's a healthcare spending account. So what, uh, what, what are some of the pros and cons of going that way? So the healthcare, the healthcare spending account has become more popular for the exact reason that you suggested, which is flexibility. Almost just about anything that's covered in the income tax as a healthcare expense can be covered. 
the so many people are saying I want my orthodontics and I don't do this, so let me do it. Let me spend what I want. The challenge becomes if we use one of our examples that we had suggested, someone becomes particularly sick and they used to have uh, unlimited drug benefits, and now let's say they have a five thousand dollar annual cap. Um, now there may be some ways to make sure that you have both if things are structured well, but let's assume that they didn't structure it, and now you have a limit of five thousand. Now we have that you know three or four thousand dollar a month claim, and they're not covered. So sometimes I think we have to make sure that people are, you know, in their interest of, you know, having those orthodontics or those designer sunglasses or whatever covered, that they're not, you know, shooting themselves in the foot, so to speak. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a that's another great point. And again, it comes down down to putting together the best package from a cost perspective, but also from the benefits perspective, and not changing it. And I think it's important to note too we're talking about contexts where there is a plan in place and now it's changing and sometimes it's changing for the worse. If you're starting from scratch where there is no benefit plan in place, uh, then a lot of the risks we're talking about don't exist. I mean, there can't be a constructive dismissal if there were no benefits before and now you're adding some, even if they're not ideal. But if you had really good benefits before, now you're coming them back, that's when some of these issues come to, come to, uh, come to fruition. I wanted to shift gears in, in the time we have left, because uh, one of the things that uh, you wanted to talk about was privacy concerns, and, it's, and in particular, claims analysis uh, and how you address the privacy concerns that, that a claim, claims analysis can raise. So I'll let you explain a bit more about that. Um, so there's, with respect to privacy, there's a couple of things that I see. Number one is some employers in the interest in saving some money want to do self-adjudication. And, and what they, that means is we'll look at paramedics, which are things like physiotherapy, chiropractic, etc. And in the process of doing that, they become aware of some of the employees' health history. And they, and unfortunately, either consciously or unconsciously, choose to act on that. And then all of a sudden we have a legal matter as opposed to a saving some some fees matter in terms of adjudication. So I always tell people self-adjudication is a bad idea. Um, the other the other item that I see with respect to privacy and claims analysis is people want to know exactly what they're paying for because it's one of the few areas where you sort of have to trust the insurance company to say everything's going being done well and fair and, and whatnot. And they say, let me know everything. And I want to know who's using that $40,000 a year. And it's a really, really bad idea to be providing that type of information. The insurance companies protect against it. Um, but you will you know, see sometimes people are trying to go around the system and provide that information. I say that's a, a terrible idea and it should never be done. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think especially for smaller organizations, smaller, you know, sort of owner-operated companies, they want to know, as you said, where, where is all this money going? Who's who's getting forty or fifty thousand dollars worth of benefits every year? Uh, but yeah, they can't. And you know, one of the things we often tell our clients in, in almost any context is you don't want to know any more than you have to about your employees or your candidates. And if you do find out that someone is getting Forty or fifty thousand dollars a year worth of medication, and then you let them go for perfectly legitimate business reasons. You're going to face a claim that at least part of the reason why you let them go related to their their need for medication, i.e., their disability, which is a breach of their human rights. So, as soon as you know that, you open yourself up to that claim, which is why, as you said, 
it's just not worth worth asking or, or finding out. Yeah, and the interesting part of that is sometimes the employer is picking at such a large number, but as we talked about before, there's also that that maximum that the employer is responsible for, which in the forty or fifty thousand dollar claim might be only ten thousand dollars, and you know they're at, acting in a way that they really shouldn't be, um, or far less than they think they're doing it for. Yeah, yeah, the benefits may be far less, but the risk is is much more than they they would anticipate. So that's a really important point. Uh, and unfortunately, we're, we're just about out of time for our discussion. But anything else that you want to mention before uh, before I let you go? Uh, no, thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, Lots, I really appreciate, first of all, I really appreciate the fact that you reached out and suggested this. So that was a great idea for a topic. And I appreciate you taking the time today. What uh, What is the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to talk about any, any of these issues further? Uh, they can reach out to me by email at lessf at cpfg.com, which is first name, last initial at cpfg.com. Perfect. And I think this uh, ways to reach you will be in the show description as well. So people should be able to, uh, to find you if they need you. But thank you so much again. Uh, that's all the time we have for our discussion. And now I'll get my chance to fire away. Thanks. So it feels like almost every time I get my chance to fire away, the, the subtitle could be Stop Making Assumptions. And I'm going to talk about this here in light of uh, Season 4, Episode 9 of Fire Away, where I spoke with Les Freeman about benefit plans and insurance plans and the fact that so many employers are making bad decisions, often because they're saving a few dollars, but they're making assumptions about you know the fact that they are able to reduce coverage, to change coverage, uh, and they're exposing themselves to liability in the process. Or we still see employers making really bad assumptions in the way they handle benefits. So imagine, you know, it's an example we see all the time where you let somebody go and then a month or two months later, they become disabled either permanently or temporarily. They try to claim disability benefits from your insurer and they're told that they're no longer covered. So what do they do? Well, if they get good legal advice, they're gonna file a claim against you for lost benefits. And we've seen several cases over the past few years where employers have been on the hook for months or years of disability benefits because they did not ensure that that coverage continued and they didn't have a good contract in place, which would prevent them from such liability. So as we often hear me say, you can avoid that liability with a good contract. Otherwise, all benefits have to continue throughout the notice period. So don't, don't assume you can cut off benefits uh, when you let somebody go or after a brief period. Uh, or if you're the individual, assume that you're on a medical leave, you're receiving your disability benefits. All of a sudden, after two years, the insurer says that you're no longer eligible for benefits and you've got to go back to work. Uh, and then your employer reaches out and says, we understand you're able to come back to work. If you're not here next week, we're going to assume that you've abandoned your job. Uh, likely you'll have a claim for wrongful dismissal. You might even have a claim for a breach of your human rights. But if you don't get legal advice, you're probably never going to know that. And you're just going to assume that you're no longer going to get benefits and you're also not going to get severance. Uh, so that first example is because the employer didn't understand how to protect itself. The second example is because the employer didn't understand the difference between someone's ability to work and someone's entitlement to disability benefits, which are two completely different things. And I, I will mention, we still routinely see termination letters, not drafted by our firm, 
which say that when someone is let go from their job, their benefits will end on their last day of work, which in most jurisdictions in Canada will be a breach of employment standards as well as a potential uh, source of common law liability. As we often say, and I've said it many times on Fire Away, a lot of our work is because people don't take the time or spend the money to understand their rights or their obligations. Instead, they make assumptions and the context of insurance plans, they don't question the insurers to make sure that they are covered properly. And that can result in tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of potential liability. It's always worth getting advice before you act. So I invite you to contact our team at Rudner Law, make informed decisions, stop making assumptions. That's all the time we have for season four, episode nine of Fire Away. I do want to thank everyone for tuning in and in particular, thank Les Freeman for joining me on the show today and providing some really useful information on how to shop for and how to oversee benefit plans. Remind everyone that at Rudner Law, we want people to treat their employment relationships as legal relationships and make informed decisions rather than making assumptions. I'll invite everyone to keep up to date on employment law matters by following our social media and signing up for our newsletter. And I'm really looking forward to the day where I don't have to say this, but although we're still making progress on the COVID front, uh, we're still dealing with implications of a pandemic in the workplace. Our firm has a COVID-19 resource center on our website. So I encourage you to check that out and, and continue to, keep, to check it out because we do keep it up to date as things change. But as I always say, none of this replaces employment law advice that's tailored to your circumstances. If you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So feel free to reach out to us. Our next episode will be on November 20th. We'll be joined by Jacqueline Bart, who is an immigration lawyer. And we'll be talking about one of the implications of COVID-19 on the workplace, which is the fact that many people are working remotely and many of them are outside of the province or even the country in which they're based. And there are many implications, including tax implications about that. So we're going to be having a really interesting discussion about what happens when someone no longer works in the jurisdiction where they were based before. Just a reminder as well that past episodes can be found on our YouTube channel, on our website, and archived on Facebook and LinkedIn. And if you like our page or subscribe to our channels, you'll receive notifications when our episodes are live. Thank you very much to Rob, to Rebecca, and to Mark, as always, for making this go off, se off seamlessly. Thank you guys all for tuning in. We'll see you next time.